the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Monday, May 16th, 2022. As we head into our third hour, there's a lot that should be said, most of which isn't. And a lot that shouldn't be said, most of which is. I'm obviously talking about the massacre in Buffalo. And while many clamor to put the blame on society or politics, I have a different view. And I think it's not the easy one. The easy view is to blame everyone and everything else in a partisan manner. And I think wrongly. There's an interesting verse in Deuteronomy that reads, When a person is found dead mysteriously in the outposts of a village, the elders, the rabbis, are to go to that place and proclaim, Our hands have not shed, excuse me, our hands have not shed this blood nor have our eyes seen this act. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. In the Talmud, it's asked why anyone would think the rabbis, the elders, should need to say this. Did anyone really blame them or think they were the guilty parties? And the answer is, the rabbis and elders must say this to say they did everything in their power, to publicly proclaim they did everything in their power to keep this death from happening. Can we say that? The easy thing is to pick apart this 18-year-old's writings and beliefs and attribute them to a political party in America, a major party where nearly 40 million Americans affiliate and where those 40 million do not engage in acts of violence or lawlessness or believe any of the stuff in that manifesto. But it is seen as that party's blame where someone says or writes a sentence here or a sentence there that can be culled from something one of those 40 million have said here and there. That, to me, is posturing and is either serious or completely unserious. If it is serious, then every member of that party should be investigated some way or another. And we have seen whiffs and fits and starts to that long before this past weekend, including people who simply disagree with the public education agenda their children are being subjected to. Extreme danger lies this way because political censorship lies this way. A priori punishment for political thought and independence and advocacy begins this way. Oliver Wendell Holmes in the Gitlow case wrote, quote, Every idea is an incitement. It offers itself for belief, and if believed, it is acted on unless some other belief outweighs it or some failure of energy stifles the movement at its birth, close quote. This is why we have clear and strong rules on speech that should constitute incitement requiring an immediate and apprehensible threat, and moreover, why we have clear and strong rules on protected speech, or used to. No bad idea will ever be outweighed by a better one if a grand censor wants to stifle stifle those better ones. And maybe, 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 maybe it's not a bad idea for people to challenge things like the sexualization of five-year-olds or the implantation of racial ideology into kindergartners. Also, maybe we should take a step back with some common sense and think that someone who is at once 
anti-Semitic by their own admission and yet claims to follow the teaching of one Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew, isn't coherent or sane in the first place. Or maybe when he says he supports socialism, it becomes interesting why nobody blames avowed socialist members of Congress for his thoughts and actions. Or maybe the really good idea is to take a step back and actually quit infantilizing adults and overly prematuring children who aren't ripe and say, you know what? 18-year-olds really don't know anything. If you want to take parts of what this guy says seriously in his manifesto, why? Why take what he says about ethnicity issues any more seriously than him saying in his manifesto, as he does, quote, maybe it's the two shots of vaccine running in my body, close quote. Of course, when you believe seven-year-olds should decide what sex they are, this becomes more and more difficult. But I'll say it again. 18-year-olds don't know anything and should stop being taken so seriously. Old enough to hold a gun and go to war is usually the first response from the left. Yup. And that is why anyone 18 who decides to go that route must either go to college first, a military academy, or enter something called basic training. Not no training, not here's a gun in uniform, now go. Not advanced training, basic training. Maybe when a high school student lectures a vice president on terrorism and it's the wisdom of foolishness, the adult, the vice president, should say, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Let me give you a book or a report or an article to read rather than I appreciate you speaking your truth and it's important that you'd speak your truth. It's not as if we don't know absolutes and the concept of truth completely here. Not yet. The left knows well how to articulate things it believes wrong, false, even dangerous, believes it with a hardened certainty. It may have the wrong basis for those beliefs, but it certainly knows the rhythms and the language and how to use them. Maybe, too, when an 18-year-old does, 18-year-old does something wrong, we should look at the responsibility of those charged with training and rearing that child for, oh, I don't know, 18 years, which is a longer period of time than Jim Jordan has been in Congress, a longer period of time than Ben Shapiro has been out of law school, and a longer period of time than Tucker Carlson has been on Fox News. Maybe, too, we as a society have done nearly everything we could to set fire to reason, by racializing and re-racializing society as we step back in astonishment to find out sick minds here and there were alit by such sick theories. Once upon a time, we actually had no problem calling those racializations sick theories. Maybe we owe it to ourselves to relearn that which we defeated in 1945 and proved at Nuremberg between 1945 and 1949. Or if too difficult or too far back, what we learned from the civil rights movement here in America from about 1949 to 1968. We went as a country that could universally denounce a George Wallace for saying segregation today, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever, to lauding and showering praise and money on race mongers and scholars who now say, quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination, close quote. 
Maybe, too, we should take a good, hard look at civil commitment law reform, as nearly every damn time something as damnable as this happens, there was an effort by friends, by teachers, by family members to do something about clear mental health problems that led to threats of violence and violence in the past. Mona Charon was once on this issue writing the hard stuff. She wrote, misplaced civil libertarian impulses have caused states to strictly circumscribe the capacity of families of the mentally ill to have them involuntarily committed for care. There are stories of many desperate families of psychotics who approach mental health authorities and police numerous times about disturbing behavior they witnessed, only to be told there was nothing to be done if the patient didn't choose to be treated. One mother talked to me about waking up to see her son standing over her bed with a knife in his hand when the mentally ill person lashes out with violence, though. It's usually too late. Clearly, we don't want families to be able to lock up their relatives in psych units for years at a time for trivial or health or selfish reasons. Treatment is expensive and the mentally ill do have rights, but the mentally ill are uniquely incapable of exercising their rights and their autonomy when in the grip of mania or delusions. To insist upon their right to refuse treatment when they cannot reason is itself unreasonable. I know of at least a hundred lives from Blacksburg, Virginia to Tucson, Arizona, and many places north and south and east and west that would have not been taken in homicides were this issue taken more seriously. And maybe too, we shouldn't have driven mental health crisis of our youth and adult populations at hyper speed with, yes, again, censorship about the concerns and doubts over the wisdom of all that for the past three years. Again, easy to take one normal thing that stands out and attribute it more cosmologically. But this child killer, killer who was a child, did say it was the COVID confinements that drove him to the crazy places on the Internet that over time in isolation seemed less and less crazy to his mind. Maybe we don't blame odd and gross readings here and there and blame mental health triggers on those given the expanse of the population that is not animated by them. But maybe we take mental health seriously in this country and think about what it is to be expected by radically and rapidly upending children's social and educational lives at the stack at the at the snap of a finger while putting them in panic and fear over such things as their fellow children, their brothers and sisters or playing with their friends or just playing basketball. Maybe we take a beat and think about what putting innocence en masse into isolation does to a people. Maybe we take a beat and think about shaming people for questioning those very things. Maybe we take a beat and think about how unnatural it is to put the innocent and the healthy into such things as quarantine and isolation. Maybe we take a beat and ask if you can engage in that kind of civil commitment, involuntary civil commitment on a mass scale. You are hypocrites and menaces for not rethinking it for when it's actually needed for those who are indeed mentally ill. Maybe we don't downgrade and cheapen the toxicity of such things as fascism and racism for political purposes so that they just stand for things we disagree with, so that the unstable start to actually believe it's better than it is. Fascism and racism can be credible or innocently thrown around. Maybe we owe an apology and should reread the testimony and works of about a dozen brave scholars, not many more 
that were willing to challenge the entertainment industries in the early 1990s for making gross profits off of the celebration of violence, sexism, racism, and who thought those things, too, should not have been sanitized or shoulders shrugged when they found a market for them, a really big market. Maybe we don't treat life so casually and dispensable while we're at it. Maybe we rethink what it means to eliminate serious and noble thoughts and statements about our country in order to make it appear worse than it is in some form of desperate decades-long political campaign. Maybe, just maybe, if we didn't teach the Declaration of Independence and its proposition that all men are created equal was was a lie instead of the truth, we might think more like it. We might think more like the best of our heroes in history and teach the idea that the inequality of people based on race is the real lie. Maybe, maybe, instead of celebrating and detoxifying and legitimizing race mongers, we teach what Frederick Douglass taught with the motto of his newspaper, The North Star, quote, right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren, close quote. Or perhaps the words of John Marshall Harlan in his dissent in the ignominious Plessy versus Ferguson case, quote, in view of the Constitution in the eye of the law, there is no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights are guaranteed by the supreme law of the land. Close quote. Maybe, maybe, maybe we stop attributing individual acts as attributable to entire groups. Another relic of 1940s Nuremberg, and maybe, 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 we then, we can all say, our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen this act. I just don't think we can say it today, and I think we're pretty darned far from being able to say it very soon. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Seth Liebson show portions of which are brought to you by the good people at Y Refi. If you're looking for a remarkable investment opportunity, it's a really great opportunity because it has a great return for investors. I want you to check out my friends at Y Refi. Y Refi helps people who are doing their best to dig out of debt the right way by doing the right thing and paying off their debts, doing so with dignity, even getting their FICO scores fixed along the way. I'm talking about a fixed no load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a collateralized and secure portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, as I say, run by really good people who are doing really well by helping others, and you can be too. I want you to check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087. That's invest yrefi.com and tell them Seth sent you. We're going to talk to Andrew C. McCarthy, Andy McCarthy, in uh, just a few moments. He's going to join us. I have a lot of questions uh, for him, and I have a feeling just given uh, 
just given uh, the the short time frame that we have, um, that we're going to need a lot more thinking and talking about the things I want to raise with him. First and foremost, question maybe some of you may have thoughts on as well. Indeed, you will. And I'd be curious to them. I used to um, I learned about these manifestos and violence and terrorist acts uh, with the Unabomber. I think that was my first exposure to the concept of them. Uh, the Unabomber who's, well, let's just, Ted Kaczynski was his name. We don't usually use the name, but it's so proliferant and distant at this point. Uh, I don't think we can give him much credibility. Um, he he bombed my friend and regular guest here, David Galerter. Uh David Galerter was never the same, lost a hand and an eye and is in continual pain. And the Newspaper of Record wanted to publish this man's manifesto. I think it was something in the order of 30,000, 35,000 words, if I'm not mistaken, this uh, this crazy man's manifesto. And, and you know, I was did a lot of talking with, did a lot of work with David Galinch, and I, I was learning about how, how insulting and wrong that was. And what I want to talk to Andy about is how hard it's been to get our hands on this one that supposedly is um, so anti, uh, anti-liberal, anti so uh, anti-left, uh, so pro-right-wing, so conservative, so pro-Tucker Carlson and all that. I, 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 I think the media has brought us to a point where they shouldn't be the only filter for us anymore. They shouldn't be the only ones in possession of it. It's been really odd that where a peek into the entirety of this man's manifesto has been put up on the internet within moments it's been taken down it's been really hard to get hands on really hard and i just am not so sure the rules should apply anymore that we don't want this out there my tenuous thought tenuous i'd be curious as to your reactions my tenuous thought is the moment the media takes a mass shooting or violent incident and attributes any political narrative to it whatsoever, one way or another, put it out there. Put it out there. We're adults. Let's all see it at this point. And if the FBI wants to do its job or local law enforcement wants to do its job, then attack the violent and maybe look at maybe, maybe look at what I was saying earlier, too which is revisit these civil commitment laws, involuntary civil commitment laws. I think it's the adult and serious thing to do. I really, really do. If we're all going to be treated like adults, let's treat each other like adults. And that means with responsibility. Andy McCarthy coming right up. We'll be right back. Portions of this show brought to you by Balance of Nature, the good people at Balance of Nature. Their fruits and veggies I take every single day, one daily dose, Gives you 10 servings of fruits and vegetables, all natural, 100% natural. Check them out at balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's a delight to welcome back longtime dear friend Andrew C. McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, senior fellow at the National Review Institute, contributing editor at National Review, author of many books, including Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, happy Monday. It's uh, one of those rare things where we're really glad it is Monday, isn't it? Yeah, uh, the way this weekend went, Seth. Yeah, uh, I, I think we're back to we're we're good to have uh, 
things to get back to. Yeah, yeah, we're good to have it in the rearview mirror, but it's not going to be in the rearview mirror. At least those objects are going to appear closer than they really are. We're talking, of course, about the um, massacre in Buffalo. Andy, so many questions. Let me let me let me start with this this one um, because you see things legally, morally, ethically, in so many other ways as well. The difficulty a lot of us are having, maybe you're excluded excluded from this. The difficulty I'm having trying to find the manifesto itself is that normal? Is that natural? Is that appropriate? Um. Well. <clears throat> it's becoming more normal. Yep. Uh, and I think the argument behind it is not, you know, it's not terribly offensive in the sense that if you think that a, um, that what an atrocious person like this is trying to accomplish is to get an airing for his repulsive ideas, your natural inclination is not to reward his atrocious behavior by giving him the airing. Right. Um, so I see that point. But, you know, the, the problem with all this, Seth, is that there's a lot of different things in tension. And I think that, you know, we have the natural human tendency that we want to have, like, a silver bullet answer yep. to everything. Yep. That's the right answer. Yep. And I just don't think that's conceivable when you have a lot of different uh interests at play and their intention and they're important for different reasons. So of course we don't want to reward uh, the shooter's behavior, but on the other hand, these ideas, you know, they need to be, if this is causing this, if there is an ideology that is in any way catalyzing the kind of thing we saw in Buffalo uh, over the weekend, then we have to explore that and try to understand it. And I'm, I'm, I guess maybe it's because I, of where I come from, yeah. Um, you know, as a trial lawyer, you always want to know the bad news. You don't yeah. want to go in and discover it in front of the jury. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Know? Yeah. you want to kind of ahead of time know um, know how bad it is, and because I don't think you can ever make an intelligent plan to deal with with things unless you know what you're dealing with. So, I, I think it's not a good thing that um, uh, things get shut down, and I think it only feeds. The argument, which I think, by the way, is not a good one for conservatives in the long run, that you know, if you don't if you don't deal with big tech and big uh, and big media, what we're going to need is a like a you know a government bureaucracy to oversee them, and I, I don't think that ends up in a good place for us. So I just I, think we need to be mindful of that. I, I think I agree on everything you said. I wanted to know if I might add one more part to it, though, uh, which is this, Andy. The media reporting on it and the access they seem to have and cherish has allowed them to put out things about these manifestos. Let's just say this manifesto that seems incomplete compared to what other people are putting out about it as well. And it makes me kind of wonder if the demand for it isn't a little more appropriate in this case when it is appearing that the media is trying to create their own narrative with that manifesto, does that hold any water with you as an argument, or maybe I'm just wrong about the facts? No, I don't think so. I think it it it, uh, it not only holds water for me in this instance. I think um, because the media has changed over the last quarter century, and particularly right. over the last decade, right. um, to the point where I think they are an open partisan mm-hmm. rather than um, somebody who always had their uh, thumb on the scale. 
but in more subtle ways. Now they just are, they're sort of unabashedly that way. Mm-hmm. I think the only salvation we have is that all the information available to us allows us to to cut the cards, yeah. allows us to see where they're mining information. And if they had gone about their business in a trustworthy way, where they say, you know, no matter what my uh, intellectual or partisan or ideological baggage was, I think my job as a journalist is to share both sides. Yeah. That would be one thing. Yeah. But that's not the journalist that's not, what, that's not the world we're operating. Right. right. We have to take a quick break. This is a quick segment. Can I come back with you one more segment a little bit longer? Yeah, of course. The question I want to ask of you, course. it's a difficult one. I'll just prep you for it over the break if it's okay. You've dealt with it your whole life, I'm sure. How we as a society should consider um, the, uh, the the allowance of speech that we dislike or the allowance of speech we consider violent, how much we should attribute speech, certain kinds of speech, to the violent actions that some people take. Can we talk about, I guess the word yeah, I'm looking for is incitement. Can we talk a little bit about that when we come back? Yep. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, to you and me, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Andrew C. McCarthy, Andy McCarthy. He is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, an NR contributor, author of Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. The only reason I say Andrew C. McCarthy and Andy McCarthy is, Andy, when you're not around, I often will quote you or talk about you as Andy, and I just want people to know <laughs> I'm talking about the same person. Also, you, uh, you deserve your full name. So, Andy, I've always been fascinated in First Amendment criminal law intersections by something Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in a dissent back in the 20s. He said, every idea is an an incitement. It offers itself for belief, and if believed and acted on, it will be acted on unless some other belief outweighs it. And I'm just wondering, you know, there is this tendency if someone with a social media account is uh, a supporter of left-wing causes, uh, there's a tendency to blame the left on our side. Mutatis mutandis the other way around, which is a little of what we're dealing with in the Buffalo massacre here, especially if you read the excerpts that NBC and MSNBC have put out. We're trying to get the full thing because it looks like there's some other contrary ideas in there as well. How, how, how seriously as a society, one that has a First Amendment, do we take these things? This debate has ranged a lot around a lot of ground, you know, whether it was – uh, rap lyrics once upon a time in the 90s or, you know, video uh, vi- videos and movies, the V-chip, all that. You kind of get where I'm going. We're talking about the word incitement. How much should we invest on a cause or an organization's or an ideology's or a party's responsibility for someone who takes their words and acts on them illegally and, in this case, uh, woefully, immorally and lethally? Well, you know, Seth, there's a lot going on there because yeah. the, the standard for, you know, policing speech by the government is different from policing it on private platforms. And I also, you know, I, I, I that quote is very famous from uh, Justice Holmes, but I don't think the, um, the, the sort of uh, mutating use of the word incitement is helpful okay. um, because incitement has a very specific understanding right. in the law, right. and, and where the dividing line is in the criminal law is incitement to violence. Right. So we live in a, in a society where 
you know, all ideas are uh, supposed to compete uh, with other ideas, as Holmes also said. Uh, and where we draw the line is where the criminal law comes in ordinarily right. is incitement to violence. There are some, you know, Ed Whalen pointed out to me at, at one point that um, probably the most interested and underrated word in uh, the First Amendment is the word the. Oh. Uh, because what the First Amendment speaks about is not freedom of speech. It right. speaks about the freedom of speech. Uh-huh. And the reason the article is important is because the freedom of speech was an understood concept mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. of the framing. It wasn't complete freedom of speech, mm-hmm. like anything goes. Mm-hmm. It was the traditionally known freedom of speech, which had exemptions from it, like fighting words and defamation and you know time, place, and manner sure. uh, restrictions and, and the like. So... As far as what you're talking about, I think the the line has always been incitement to violence. Right. And you can expand it out to incitement to criminality, like you shouldn't have um, political protection to urge someone to, like, sell heroin, right, say, right, or, right, or, right, right. or something. But the, the law has really made violence rather than just broadly criminality uh, the line that we draw. And I think you can't blame speech. Speech gets blamed for a lot of things yeah. that are cultural. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if, if I said to a bunch of people, you know, I really don't like what's, what's going on, let's go blow up the, you know, the bridge. Yep. Most people would think that was ridiculous, mm-hmm. you know, and that there was something wrong with me. And if we've gotten to a point where merely saying that makes people say, yeah, that's a good idea, let's go do that, then that's not a speech problem. It's a much broader, um, that's a much broader it, it, problem. It's almost it's not a heckler's specific. veto. It's a mental health veto, isn't it? Because, yeah. in a sense, let's let's put it on the table. I, I, I hate to do this, but there is a specific mm-hmm. commentator on television that a lot of people have been saying he used his words, and that commentator has blood on his hands. That's what's going around. For God's and, sake, right? For God's sake, that's yeah. a mental well, health veto, you know, isn't I, it? I mean, they're not reading the part of they're not reading the part of the of the manifesto, and this goes to your point about the there's way that too. Yeah, that. The guy's got a section in there about how much he hates Fox News, right? Right. Right. um, So I I think the two things are inconsistent. And I also think that, you know, I don't like this kind of demagoguery where you you single out a person for an idea that you disagree with. You know, if you you want to disagree with a person, then... That's why I think Oliver Wendell Holmes was trying to drive that, in a sense. You know, any idea can be arrested as an incitement, right? I mean, I think, I think, if someone is crazy enough to pick up something and act on it in a way the speaker never intended, Right. I think. But, well, I also think the thing you have to worry about is the Alinsky rule, right, where where the idea is to, you take what you don't like and you personify it, right? Yeah. And that's the reason you find a person. You find uh, someone you can demagogue because the person then becomes the idea, right? And if you can make the person noxious enough, the idea becomes yeah. noxious in the, in, the, in the public mind. Or the political so, party. There's like a school of demagoguery about this that I think is really repulsive. Right. Right. I agree. I, I thank you. I, I, I am glad you put it in those in, in, in that in, in, in that context, because I agree. And I think it's a dangerous road to go down. I just think it's a very dangerous road to go down. And yet I think we are going to go down that road. I just it, it, there is a feel from the disinformation board to the FBI business with school board meetings to the kinds of things you're hearing the governor of New York say and the way Biden is you know going to be uh, at the scene uh, in Buff? It, it just feels like we are entering an era 
where conservative speech is going to be treated like libel and slander, in a sense. I, it, maybe I'm paranoid. It just has that feel, Andy. Well, I think, I think you're right in the sense that the, the people who are now in charge of the government are going to try to pull that off. Uh, the problem is, you know, their hold on the government isn't that, uh, it's, it's pretty tenuous. <laughs> yeah. And secondly, there's going to be blowback, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not static. Uh, Biden's, you know, every everything Biden says will be an incitement, too, if you yeah. want to think, you know, if I may borrow from uh, from justice. So, you know, I, you know it, it, we've had these situations, I'm reminded because we've talked so much about Roe versus Wade, where um, remember in Casey the court the court in that ridiculous majority opinion says you know when the court calls on everyone to come together and you know it gives you an, a settlement yeah. patriotically you're you're summoned to follow it and I think every time government thinks that they can blow the whistle and say this is how it's going to be now yeah, yeah. Um, they've really gotten out of their lane and I think Biden will find that out if he's too oh I'm old enough to remember when putting a mask on was your patriotic duty. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Andy McCarthy, I, I just knew I needed to speak to you today. It was a short visit, but will you stay close on this? We're going to have a lot of layers to this thing. Can I call on you again in the near future? Oh, Probably course, the nearest of futures. It's my pleasure every time. Andrew McCarthy, what a good friend, what a great teacher. Always, as I introduce or at least uh, excuse you, say the teacher America needs. Thank you, Andy. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Appreciate you spending some of your afternoon with us. You know the phrase, for whom the bell tolls? It's not from Metallica. It's not from the Bee Gees. It's not even, it's not even from Ernest Hemingway. No, it's from John Donne writing, uh, writing a meditation in the uh, 17th century. All mankind is of one author and is one volume. Even when one man dies, one chapter is not torn out of the book, but translated into a better language. And every chapter must be so translated, as therefore the bell that rings to a sermon calls not upon the preacher only, but upon the congregation to come. So this bell calls us all, but how much more me, who am brought so near the door? No man is an island entire of itself. Because any man's death diminishes me, as I am a part of mankind, and therefore never sent to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Would it not be a wonderful thing when something like took place over this weekend happens? Because we are an imperfect society built of imperfect people, things are going to happen. Things are going to go bad. Things are going to go haywire. Some brains are not wired correctly. Instead of politicizing it or racializing it, we think about the victims. And we think about their families. And we think about the society we really kind of do wish we had here don't seem to be willing the means to get us to the ends that we say we desire. And that is, again, all men equal, and the death of any one of them diminishes me, and we are the lesser when any one of them falls. I think that's a bell 
that should toll for everyone in the United States right now. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.